My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life and in your own context to refocus on the story of Jesus. Our first scripture reading for this week comes from Isaiah chapter 25, and we're reading verses 6 through 9. I'll be reading from the NRSV this week. Isaiah chapter 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for his peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow and of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our second scripture reading comes from John chapter 2, and we're reading John 2, verses 1 through 12. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is also the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're starting with a real quick Bible quiz this morning. Just one question, and I was planning, if we were having, ah, man, if we were having uh, worship in person, I had like a starburst that I was going to like throw out to the person that got the question right, but oh well, if you get it right, give yourself a cold winter weather treat or something. Here's your question. Who can tell me without looking what the last book in the Old Testament is? Last book in the Old Testament. It is Malachi. The Christian church has traditionally placed Malachi at the very end of the Old Testament for two reasons. First of all, it was very likely the the last book written, written after the Jewish people had started to return from exile and rebuild the temple under the watchful eye of various foreign powers. And two, because the book of Malachi has some of the most striking messianic prophecies in the Bible, meaning prophecies predicting a Messiah. Malachi seems to expect and foretell a coming figure in the tradition of Elijah, who will resume the work of God in Israel and will bring to completion the promises that God made throughout the Old Testament. The book of Malachi yearns towards the New Testament, towards the gospel. 
specifically to the arrival of John the Baptist, the voice crying out in the wilderness. Malachi represents the hope of the Jewish people living with the effects of the exile and the sins of their forefathers, the hope that that God was not through with them and that some greater work of God was still coming. Malachi was written about 450 BCE. John the Baptist did not show up until the first or second year AD or CE, the common era. That means that the little title page that divides the Old and New Testaments in your NIV or NRSV Bible, that little title page represents over 400 years of divine silence. For over 400 years after Malachi gave his messianic prophecies, the Israelites did not receive a word from the Lord. Think about how long that is. 400 years. That is twice as long as our country has been around. It's about 10 generations. 400 years from now, it will be the year 2,422, and our descendants will all be living on Mars or something. 400 years of divine silence. Before this silence, the Israelites were used to hearing from God through the mouths of prophets and through his temple quite regularly. It was just a feature of ancient Israelite life. But then for 400 years, nothing. Think about how that silence must have affected them. Think about how hard it is to hold on to hope for that long. Do you think they were ever just tempted to move on? To conclude that the traditions and the faith of their parents, grandparents, and great-great-grandparents just wasn't worth a whole lot? Maybe they were tempted to embrace the culture and the lifestyle of Rome, the ruling empire. It was flashy enough and powerful enough, after all. I wonder if if you have ever suffered through what felt like a period of divine silence. I know that I have. There there are times, there are periods in my life where God is like right beside me. I can feel his presence in worship. Every time I open the Bible, he speaks to me and reveals the beauty of his word and his story. And those times are amazing. But there are also times, there are seasons when, you know, the music just, just sounds like noise. When I open the Bible, the words just fly by my eyes without landing. Um, and I still have to preach a sermon every week, which, which can be difficult occasionally, uh, you know. I have to ask the Holy Spirit to, to enliven things. And there are a lot of different reasons for these periods. Maybe, they, maybe there are genuine difficulties going on in life, wounds, losses that are making it hard to find joy in God. Um, it's also possible that I just let myself slip into apathy um, or, and, and get out of my, uh, my normal spiritual rhythms. Or, or maybe the weight of the world is just landing particularly heavy that day or that week or that month, the depressing nature of the news cycle and such. Either way, they're, they're difficult time periods. They can affect my thoughts and my moods. They can affect my actions if I'm not careful. For the next three-ish weeks, the gospel readings and the Revised Common Lectionary, which we will be following for this next liturgical season, um, the, the gospel readings are made up of Jesus' first sermons, so to speak. They, they, they talk about the first things that Jesus said or did in order to begin his ministry. This week, we are considering the story of the first of Jesus' signs, the miracle of the wedding in Cana, which the author uses to kick off the story of Christ's earthly ministry in the Gospel of John. And the next two coming Sundays, we'll be meditating on Luke chapter 4, which is a sermon that Jesus preaches in his hometown of Nazareth in order to begin his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. And these first sermons, they're really important because they are how Jesus decided to break the divine silence. After 400 years of distance and of slagging hope, what did Jesus decide that he needed to say or do first? They reveal pieces of what Jesus is here to do, and I'm hoping that they can give us or they can remind us about certain truths that will be good news for us in our own periods of what feels like divine silence. Let's jump into it. John chapter 2. This is going to be sort of a verse-by-verse expository style sermon, so it might be helpful to have your own Bible to follow along with. The first two verses of chapter 2, not super exciting. Very matter-of-fact. Who, what, when, where, why. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are all at a wedding in a town called Cana. But the action picks up in verse 3 when the wine gives out. 
Now, this might not sound like a big deal to us, maybe a slight disappointment at most, but it is worth noting that in Jesus' cultural context, the wine running out at a wedding feast was a much bigger problem. The class of Jewish peasants, farmers, and fishermen that Jesus was a part of, they, you, they wouldn't have had the money to enjoy nice wine every weekend, but for your wedding, well, you saved up for that. You pinched pennies, you borrowed from family members, you sold off a cow if you had to. Because wedding feasts routinely lasted several days, and the cultural expectation was that there would be plenty of wine for all of the guests throughout all of the festivities. And so in Jesus' own cultural context, it would have been mortally embarrassing for the hosts if the wine gave out before the reception was over. So it's probably with a concerned and compassionate heart that Jesus' mother, perhaps pulling him aside to avoid drawing attention to the issue, says to her son, they had no wine. And Jesus' response always seems to rub people the wrong way. He says, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Um, a bit curt, at the very least, we might say. This is actually a very important verse in the story, though, so we're going to have to camp out here for a moment. Let's deal with the obvious question first. Is Jesus just, is he just being like a real jerk to his mom? Here in the South, we're expected to refer to our elders as sir and ma'am. How would y'all's mother have reacted if you ever addressed her as woman growing up? I'm betting some of you watching this video might have received a swift slap across the face. Again, cultural context is helpful. Jesus is not being rude per se. It was fairly common at the time to refer to someone with the term man or woman as a sort of friendly little address, kind of like how most guys my age refer to their friends as dude, like, dude, you want to come play basketball or something like that? Um, but but it is weird that Jesus didn't call Mary mother or mom or something. Um, he's not being rude, but he is, however, being very distant, not intimate. It seems as if here Jesus is determined to act in the role of the Christ, acting not solely or mainly as Mary's son, but as the Messiah, the Son of God, come to earth for a very specific purpose. Mary, Mary might be thinking of this wedding in Cana as a fun family event that Jesus might be able to help go more smoothly, but Jesus is already thinking in terms of his ultimate destiny, his reason for being here on earth in the first place. This is driven home by his next statement. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus's final hour is a recurring theme throughout the Gospel of John. It's like a drumbeat. It builds up the suspense and the anticipation as the narrative leads us towards Calvary. In chapter four, Jesus will tell the woman at the well that the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In chapter five, he says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice. And then right before the Roman soldiers arrive to take him to the cross, Jesus prays to God in chapter 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. So here Jesus is telling his mother, let's not rush things. I've got a lot of people to talk to, signs to perform before I can fulfill my ultimate purpose. My time has not yet come. But strangely, perhaps, and what might be a good example of mother always knowing best, Jesus decides to help anyway. His final hour has not yet arrived, but he has decided apparently that it's time to begin his ministry. It's time to break the divine silence. It's time to, as the narrator puts it at the end of the story in chapter 2, verse 11, it's time to manifest his glory. A piece of it, just a little picture, a hint, a small unveiling of Jesus' ultimate purposes and the meaning of the cross and the empty tomb in order to help us, the reader, understand why Jesus is here and what he is here to do. So the wine has run out. The hosts are in danger of mortifying embarrassment, and Jesus' mother has told the servants to follow any instructions that her son gives them. In verse 6, the narrator pauses in order to describe in some detail the six empty jars that were apparently lying around. They're made of stone, they hold 20 or 30 gallons apiece, and they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. 
It is a weirdly long and detailed description, which is very uncommon in the Bible. Have you noticed reading the Bible that the Bible does not often describe things in detail? The Bible almost never pauses to, for instance, describe the striking shade of green paint that was slowly chipping off Peter's fishing boat, or the giant maple leaves that were shading the Garden of Gethsemane in speckled shade. Those descriptions aren't ju- just aren't in there. So when the Bible does pause to give you several details about a certain thing, they are almost always important, significant details. This description of the jars, made of stone, holding 20 or 30 piece, gallons apiece, and specifically used for the Jewish rites of purification, That feels even longer and clunkier than the original Greek. It stands out like a sore thumb. So we know that there is probably more going on here than we think. Traditionally, the church and the history of interpretation of 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 this chapter, how they have interpreted this story throughout history, the church is seen in the six empty stone jars, which remember the text goes out of its way to say were meant for the Jewish rites of purification. The church is seen in these jars a symbol for the hopes of the nation of Israel. After 400 years, the hope of Abraham's descendants, who at one point believed God was going to make their name great and bless all nations of the world through them, after 400 years, the hope in those promises has run dry and the jars are empty. They are no longer convinced that God was a loving and and good God who would fulfill his promises to them. They were no longer sure that God loved them and would provide for them. Sure, there was the religious elite like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who kept up the law and made sure that the temple coffers were full, but the people on the ground, Jesus' people, the peasants and fishermen and farmers who suffered on the rule of Rome and the rule of the religious elite alike, their hope and their confidence in God and their confidence in the faith of their forefathers, their parents, it was as empty and as dry as these dusty stone jars. And so Jesus, to announce his arrival, to kickstart his ministry and to break the divine silence, decides to fill the empty jars with water and then turn the water into what adds up to about 120 gallons of the finest of wines. Our Old Testament reading that we read this morning comes from Isaiah 25, and in this passage, the prophet Isaiah is preaching from the midst of the exile, and he recounts a vision that he had of the end time, the moment when God has righted all wrongs and has made all things new. It's an incredible piece of Hebrew poetry. It speaks of God taking away the shroud, swallowing up death, wiping every tear from our eyes, but it begins with the image of a great feast. On this day, Isaiah says, The Lord of hosts will make for all of his peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wines well-refined. You know, I admire, I admire the temperance and the discipline of our brothers and sisters who refrain from alcohol, and it is surely something to be careful and thoughtful about. Uh, But we, we do all have to acknowledge that when the Bible wants to describe a scene of great joy and happiness, to describe the table that will be set when God has completed his work, When the Bible wants to do that, the wine flows freely and abundantly. And so after 400 years of divine silence, 400 years of disappointment, 400 years of fearing that perhaps Isaiah's vision of the great feast was just a silly dream, Jesus kickstarts his ministry and breaks the divine silence by filling the empty jars with water and turning it into 120 gallons of the finest wine. And with this, the narrator says, the first of his signs, Jesus manifested his glory. The blessings of the Old Testament The wonders that God did through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are not dead and they're not irrelevant at all. In fact, their fulfillment is here and the best is yet to come. The creator God who loved and who wooed the world for millennia has not gone away. He's not abandoned us in disgust or disinterest. No, he's here to declare that the best is yet to come. This, the first of his signs, Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of John shows the overabundant grace and provisions of the God who does not allow divine silences to last indefinitely. 
the person and work of Jesus through his life, through his death on the cross, and in his resurrection is like water turned into wine. Forgotten and abandoned hopes given new vitality, a way made out of no way, blessings and an overflowing of grace when it is least expected, provision and comfort in the midst of a desert, forgiveness and salvation through the most surprising of means, through a cross and through an empty tomb. As I was thinking this past week how we might kind of land the plane, how we can apply this good news to our own lives and our own context in a concrete way, I realized that we do need to tread somewhat carefully here. The truth that our God creates a way out of no way, turns water into wine, and lavishes blessings and love upon us in times when we are least expecting it, um, sometimes that is misapplied and turns into a sort of prosperity gospel. The lesson tends to be reduced down to, oh, you don't have enough money or you are down on your luck financially, or you you are struggling in some material way, where our God turns water into wine. Financial blessings, solution to your problems, are right around the corner if you have enough faith, if you pray hard enough. And, you know, God can bring assistance in surprising, unforeseen ways. He's been known to do that from time to time. But this application, when it is the only one, it becomes generalized. It tends to put our focus squarely on this world and our own wealth and our own prosperity and material situation, and that can become really dangerous. But I think that we as Christians, as followers of the Savior who turns water into wine, we do have to live with God's overflowing grace and gifts constantly before us. God does not allow valleys or periods of divine silence to last indefinitely. That is true, and it should affect the way that we live. And I think that one of one of the good ways to apply the wedding in Cana to our own context is through the lens of, of what's called a scarcity and abundance mindset. Have you all heard of those terms before? Um, I, think, I think they come from the field of psychology originally. If you have a scarcity mindset, then that means that you operate from the assumption that resources are strictly limited and survival, life actually, is a matter of getting your piece of the pie, securing as much food, power, or money as you can. And in a lot of ways, we humans are hardwired. Our brain is set to a scarcity mindset. And then the culture around us, especially in our own day and time, reinforces it. And I personally myself find myself slipping into a scarcity mindset, especially when I'm struggling through what feels like a period of divine silence. Uh, for instance, think about the messages that the, that the corporate ladder, the language of the market, our jobs tend to send our way, right? Make as much money as you can for as long as you can while you can. Because there's only so much to go around and you should not expect help from anyone and the wealth is your best bet for happiness. That's a scarcity mindset. Think about something like political advertisements which are already starting to bombard us in anticipation of the 2022 elections. Have, have you all noticed that, that each and every midterm, governor, senatorial, or presidential election is apparently the most important election in the history of America? If my opponent wins, the politician says, then all is lost. That is also, that's a scarcity mindset. Power is limited. Either they're going to have it or we're going to have it. It's zero sum. It's them or us. And I think for Christians, what is often underlying these scarcity mindsets is fear. Fear specifically that the jars might be empty and that they might remain empty. It's a symptom of feeling like God has fallen indefinitely silent. What if this world and this world's value system is actually all that there is and that the faith of our forefathers is not worth much? It's a terrifying thought because if this world is all that there is, if my hope and the promises have run dry, if the confidence and the faith of my, of those that came before me is diminishing, then yeah, I mean, I want to make sure that I've gotten my fair share while I'm here. I want to go on the nice vacations, eat the best food, see all the pretty places. I have to get mine while the getting is good. If the jars are empty and they're going to say empty, 
if this world is all that there is, then yeah, the political showdowns of my own time have an ultimate importance. It's them or us. Otherwise, the wrongs will never be righted and the world will never be as it should be. The Democrats, Republicans, conservative liberals, coastal elites, or country rednecks, they're going to screw things up in a permanent and irreparable manner. But here in Jesus' first sermon, he fills the jars with water and then turns the water into wine. Our God is a God who breaks divine silences with displays of fantastic abundance. He is bringing about a world that is flowing with milk and honey. He has committed to sacrificing himself for our redemption and commencing the great Thanksgiving where the wine will never run dry. And this is freeing. It should free us from a scarcity mindset in order to live with a head-turning and attention-grabbing abundance mindset that stands out in our culture like, like a rose in the middle of a desert. This should free us from the scarcity mindset that says that we have to get ours, get our piece of the pie while the getting is good. Because abundant blessings ultimately await us all, and therefore we are free to give with open hands of our time and of our resources. It frees us from the scarcity mindset that tells us that each and every political development is an existential threat. Because we know that the power structures of this world are temporary and they are contingent, and they will barely survive as memories by the time God ushers in, and ushers in his kingdom and sets the table for the abundant feast. And so therefore we are free from the anxiety that so many public figures depend on for their votes, and we're free to live in peace with people of all different sorts of perspectives. I haven't, I haven't ended with a homework assignment in a while, and that's on me. I've gotten lax. I've gotten too easy on you. Um, but here is your assignment for this week. If you, next time that you are going through a period of what feels like a divine silence, maybe you can feel your hope running dry, and you, you can feel yourself slipping into one of those scarcity mindsets, realize that that's happening, And take a second, take a morning, take a quiet afternoon, take a southern snow day to reread the first of Jesus' signs, the story of God turning water into wine, and meditate on this quality of God. He is a God of abundance who does not allow periods of divine silence to last forever. The jars are full of the finest of wines, and you are free to live into that blessing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Words podcast brought to you by Grifton United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to our podcast, sharing the episode with a friend, or making plans to visit us on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street. We would love to have the opportunity to greet you in person. If you have any feedback, comments, or questions, you can email me at cpunt at nccumc.org. God bless.